Kia ora. Welcome to our service this morning. Why don't you grab yourselves a seat? It's lovely to have you here. Special welcome if you're a visitor here or if it's your first time. It's great to have you join with us this morning. Today, um, it's exciting to be able to share with you that we have, as a church, decided to become an, here it is, drum roll, an eco-church. So we have put in our application in and been accepted, so we are now officially part of eco-church New Zealand, and that is part of an organisation that runs that called Arosha, which is a global organisation about um, encouraging Christians in conservation, so looking after the environment. So what we are looking to do is making our church as sustainable as possible, caring for the environment and the world around us. So we've already started some of the things you tick off. We have our garden. We're involved in teaching kids about gardening and that's one of the things but the aim is not to be perfect before you start but to have a commitment to progress and working towards becoming as sustainable as possible now we had a great head start in that if you've ever been here for communion we've had our little glasses we have just been gifted a whole lot of little glass ones so that's a good tick we can um, progress there. But if this is something you are passionate about, caring for the environment, helping us as a community care for the environment, we will be starting an eco-church group that will help guide the decisions and you can feedback information to the vestry on decisions. So if that's something you're passionate about, let me know. You can flick me an email. I think my email's on the back with just the church emails there. Flick me an email and say, I'm keen to be part of that group. We've already got a couple of people keen to launch this group that can then advise us, particularly as we do our new building, trying to figure out ways that we can make that as ecologically sustainable as possible. So that is our exciting news this week. Now, all parts of being an eco-church, caring for the environment, I'll tell you this now. The lovely Jenny, who runs the garden out the back, has bought in peonies today, and nearby the morning tea, they are there for you to take. So if you would like a peony bloom, get in quick. They're actually just the buds at the moment, but they're very beautiful. So get in quick for your peonies there. Another thing worth mentioning before we pray for our world is yesterday, some people were celebrating with fireworks, but another day, is there any kid here who knows something else that we remember on the 5th of November, apart from Guy Fawkes, particularly in New Zealand? A kid or a teenager? Anyone, anyone, parents, feel free to whisper to your children. Do we have an adult who remembers? I see that hand, Dave. Parihaka. So yesterday we also remember Parihaka and the great Christian witness of people who stood against violence with um, non-violence and uh, followed the way of Jesus, even though they were betrayed and hurt. So I want to lead us in prayer I'm going to sing the Lord's Prayer, and after that, then the kids will go out after that. So why don't we stand together as we pray for our world and we pray for peace, particularly as we look at what's happening around the world with wars and the threat of wars. Let's pray for the way of Jesus and the example of Tefiti and Toru in Parihaka. God, we thank you for this beautiful world that you have given us to be stewards of, and we acknowledge we don't always care for it the way that we should. And we pray for our church here as we launch into becoming an eco-church that you would guide our decision-making. May we become a beacon of hope 
to a world that has forgotten how to care for your creation. I pray uh, that we would have the right people join our team and that it would be um, an exciting new initiative for us to launch in. And God, we thank you for the example of Parihaka, how people met guns with flowers. And we pray that in our world where there is violence and hurt, that guns would be met with non-violence and violence would be overturned. Jesus, we pray for your way of peace to conquer a world of violence. Amen. If you want to lead us in our Lord's Prayer. Eto mato matua iterangi kia taputo ingoa kia tai mai tau rangatiratanga ki runga ki te whenua kia rite ano ki tō te rangi Kito te rangi A real Let your will be our guide Your love our desire A real A real Kia tapu to ingoa, 
program and the rest of us will continue as we worship together. Show 
Pokémon. Yeah. 
God, we pray as we're here in this place that you would reveal yourself to us. May we learn something new about you. But more importantly, may we encounter you and your love and your grace. Amen. Grab yourselves a seat. If you weren't here when I did the welcome, welcome to you. Lovely to have you here. Today we're going to um, hear this interesting passage where um, it's interesting who is asking Jesus these deep questions and also the questions are questions that I think uh, filter around in our world. And I thought, actually, before I read you this passage from Luke, I'm going to give you a little bit of, so I'm going to skip through this just for now, give you a little bit of background info so then you know who is it who's asking Jesus these questions and then we can get into it. So around in Jesus' day, there was lots of sort of groups and there were zealots who wanted to fight the Romans and then there were Pharisees who were all about, all about you must obey the law, the law at all times. The Essenes were all into this sort of stripped back living, just the essentials. And then we have the Sadducees and here is a little bit background information about Sadducees. Sadducees were what we would call deists today. They believed that God was inactive in history and didn't care about people or any other part of creation. They didn't believe in angels or demons. They rejected the resurrection of the dead and didn't believe in an afterlife. They were very wealthy and wielded considerable political power. I was thinking about this, and it reminded me of something I saw a video clip um, many years ago. So risking offending people here, I saw this video and it was interviewing political leaders, so people who have political power, and it was asking them a whole range of questions. What's your view on this? What's your view on this? And it asked them, do you believe in God? And it was interesting hearing all these political leaders giving an answer to that and trying to be politically savvy, knowing that they have to appeal to everybody who might be voting. So some are blunt, yes. Some are blunt, no. And John Key was being interviewed. It was about 10 years ago. And I think he was Prime Minister at the time, and they said, do you believe in God? Now, a little bit of background history, John Key is Jewish. His mother was a European Jew who came to New Zealand. So here's this big question, John Key, do you believe in God? And he ummed and ahed, um, uh, and he said, well, I don't believe in life after death. And that was how he left it. And then the interview moved on. But when I read this, I'm like, here's someone who's very wealthy, wield considerable political power, who doesn't believe in life after death, who's a Jew. Maybe Sadducees are a little bit like <laughs> John Key. Okay. <laughs> but here, here, okay. Flipping away again. Don't want to be offensive. Don't want to. But here is, there was a historian uh, that came shortly after Jesus, and he was a Jew, and he wrote about the Roman Empire. His name was Josephus, and he wrote this about the Sadducees. This gives a different angle. 
Josephus makes special notes in his writings that the Sadducees were power-hungry, arrogant, and rude to the common people. A little bit less flattering. So here we have a picture. Now we're going to go back. I'm going to read you this passage from the book of Luke. It comes in um, chapter 20. So now you get a little bit of a sense. Who are the characters in this story? Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there's no resurrection from the dead. They pose this question. Teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies leaving a wife but no children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So the second brother married the widow, but he also died. Then the third brother married her, and this continued with all seven of them who died without children. Finally, the woman also died. So tell us. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection for all seven were married to her? And Jesus replied, Marriage is for people here on earth, but in the age to come, those worthy of being raised from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they will never die again. In this respect, they'll be like angels. They are children of God and children of the resurrection. But now... As to whether the dead will be raised, even Moses proved this when he wrote about the burning bush. Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, he referred to the Lord as God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead, for they are all alive to him. So here's this uh, quite common incident of Jesus playing sparring with these opponents who are out to trick him. Here we go, Jesus, what about this scenario? Seven men, and so on. And then they weave what they think is this tricky question for Jesus. And then he replies, actually, what happens after we die is not what you think or you expect. And he refers to this resurrected life. There are people who are resurrected, come back to life, so here Jesus starts to hint at questions that I think lie just beneath the surface in our culture. And you see them bubble up when someone has someone close to them die. And you see it, I think Facebook is the great revealer on what does our culture believe about life after death. Someone loses something they know, someone they love, and they'll say something like, um, you know, it's not forever, I'll see you again one day. Um, or a comment like, fly high with the angels, or I know you're watching over me now. And there's all these beliefs that are circling around that people hold on to. When we die, we don't quite know what happens, but actually we live with these beliefs. One day we'll see people again. Um, people, you know, death is not the end. There's something ethereal going on here that's unknown. And I read this list of um, you know, questions that I think are lying just beneath and unspoken in our culture. Do we survive death? Will we be reunited with those we've left behind or those who've gone before? Will our actions in this life be punished or rewarded? Will we have an opportunity after death to make amends or change our ways? Will our lives continue immediately after death or do we have to wait till the final end of history? What kind of body might we have where will we be? People, I think, 
sort of grasping at vague ideas, what's going to happen. And I think a lot of uh, what we do believe is sort of picked up, bits here, bits there. And um, actually, if you look in most cultures, there's a bit of a common theme when it comes to what people will think happens after you die. Here is what was common in Jesus' time amongst the Romans. There were no fixed or enforced beliefs about life after death in ancient Rome. The general consensus, though, was that the deceased lived on in the underworld. In the poem by Virgil, the hero Aeneas ventures into an underworld, and here he encounters dreamlike fields of Elysium, where the souls of the blessed reside, and gloomy Tartarus, the home of the damned. And if you look in most ancient cultures, Celtic culture, Norse culture, Polynesian cultures, there's this commonly held thought. This is what happens. You go to this underworld, um, Hades, hell, you know, it's got different names in different cultures, and, or, you know, the good one, but often there's this notion that you're sort of paying for your behaviour here on earth, and that's often in a lot of cultures what is um, believed and so here what Jesus is saying is beginning to cut through and say something quite different he's talking about when people are resurrected coming back to life and he talks there will be a time when people will be resurrected and it's going to look different because the things you used to hear on earth like marriage aren't going to be there anymore now, Luke wrote this after the most remarkable event in all of history, and this is how early Christians understand this passage. And this is because Jesus was killed on a cross, put in a grave, and then three days later was resurrected. He came back to life, and people encountered him. But they encountered him in this different way. Mary Magdalene encounters him and doesn't initially recognize him. And there's lots of stories of the disciples saying they didn't dare ask who this man was because they knew it was Jesus. But clearly something quite radical and different has happened. And so the early church had to wrestle, what is this? What is this new way of understanding life after death? How do we put words around it? And they had to create language and concepts because this was too big for anything they'd previously held. And so through history now, you get this weaving of this new idea that broke through history 2,000 years ago. That death is not the end, that Jesus has victory over death, and that one day we'll be resurrected as Jesus was. This is remarkable new teaching and it does clash with some of the commonly held ideas in cultures all around the world. A lot of this um, thinking that kind of spells out what the early Christians believed is summed up in a book by N.T. Wright or Tom Wright, Surprised by Hope. And he talks about this, the early Christians, what they believed and why they believed it. And they gave their whole life for this idea we believe that there is a resurrected life. Why? Because hundreds of us saw Jesus come back from the dead. And this changes everything. There's no longer this notion that when you die, you're going to go to this disembodied existence somewhere else and float round on clouds. There's now this idea that we're going to be here on earth. And something new and radical 
is going to be happening. N.T. Wright comments that this is really different from some of the thinking of the time, both amongst religious people and in the wider secular thinkers. There is this no idea of this disembodied heaven. It's very much embodied here. And it's not re um, reincarnation. It's talking about, you know, you will exist again in a rebuilt new world. N.T. Wright makes this comment. Western Christians have imagined that at the end of the day, God is going to throw the present space-time universe into a trash can and we'll be sitting on clouds playing harps. The ultimate future that we're promised is so much more interesting than that. It's new heavens and a new earth with new bodies to live in. He talks about how we use the phrase when we describe we've seen someone and they're getting really sick and we're like, oh, they're just a shadow of their former self. And N.T. Wright says, we are a shadow of our future selves. What we exist here is just a shadow of what to come, what's to come, something more real and more beautiful than we can possibly imagine. N.T. Wright here picks up on quite orthodox Christian thinking, but that has got buried beneath a whole lot of cultural assumptions. But this is what the early church believed, that we would be resurrected, Jesus would return, people would come back to life, and a new earth, a new order would be created. But N.T. Wright, I think, is different, and he proposes something that I think is really fascinating. What happens in the meantime? You know, if the end of history is 100,000 years away, what happens to us in the meantime? And he draws on the story of Jesus dying on the cross and turning to the criminals either side to figure this out. And here's the story. One of the criminals hanging beside Jesus scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. How does this all reconcile? Well, N.T. Wright reads this, and he says, one day we will be resurrected to this new earth. But in the meantime, we enter paradise into the very presence of God. And here we exist, and we are cleansed, and we are made whole. N.T. Wright talks about we shouldn't be talking about life after death. Ultimately, we talk about life after life after death. This is what we are interested in. What is going to happen? Life after life after death. So here he is. He says, eventually we'll be resurrected. But in the meantime, we encounter the presence of God. We enter paradise and perhaps some otherworldly realm. And we ready ourselves. As I was pondering this, I was fascinated by the contrast of this thinking with other religious thinking that comes around. And here is um, a Jewish sort of contrast, but you may also read this, and particularly if you've been brought up in a Catholic church, recognize some other 
uh, similar teaching here. The rabbis believed that those who studied Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, and led a righteous life would go to Gan Eden, that's the word for paradise, after they died. Those who neglected the Torah and led unrighteous lives would go to Gehenna, even though usually only long enough for their souls to be cleansed before moving on to Gan Eden. You might recognize it's similar to purgatory, the Catholic teaching of, you know, you go for a time and you be punished and then you're cleansed and then you're good enough to go to heaven. What I find fascinating is this contrast. N.T. Wright says, when we die, we go into the presence of God to be cleansed. So we are good enough to come back to earth for this second go at this perfect or perfect earth existence. And here, I think, is the beauty of the gospel. We don't have to be punished, whipped, until we change our way and we're good enough. What we need is to come into the presence of God and experience God's incredible love, and then we become good enough. That is how we change our ways, not by punishment, but by love. Interesting, the Quakers, um, which was a religious group, they were pacifists, um, really interesting group. They uh, believed that prisoners should have a different way of experiencing their prison sentence. And back in the day, the prisoners were all sort of shoved together in a big uh, group. And, you know, dog-eat-dog world, and, you know, whoever survived at the end of it, sort of, that was the prison sentence. And they said people in prison don't need to be punished, they need the chance to encounter the divine light. It's their way of looking at it. And so, somewhat misguidedly, but probably right intention, they said people need to be in individual cells so nothing will distract them, and there they'll be able to encounter God and change their ways. I think what we now know is that often we, enc often we encounter God through other people. We need community, but this was their idea, and sadly I think it's used to torture people now, but if you could just be alone and with God, then you would be cleansed and be made whole. The idea was right, the execution maybe missed the mark a little bit, but here is this first invitation for us, because this we don't need to wait until we die. We can experience the presence of God, the creator of the universe, now. We can experience the love and mercy and forgiveness and the wholeness on offer now. And in response, live transformed lives the way that God intended us to. That care for his creation, that care for the world around us, that care for other people. This is the first invitation. Come into the presence of God and be cleansed. And then the second invitation is, what do we do? What do we do in response to this? Got a quote here from Maya Whitaker, and um, I really wanted a quote from a local person, and she grew up in Burwood. She is now a lecturer at Laidlaw Theological College. She makes this comment, new creation is not wipe it all out and start afresh in heaven, which is somewhere else. The new creation comes to earth as a complete renovation and transformation. And what are we waiting for? What we are waiting for determines what we are doing in the meantime. We're waiting for God to come and make all things new, but we don't have to wait. 
until the end of time, we can partner with God and work to make all things new here. And this is one of the reasons why, as a church, we are becoming an eco-church. Because right here, right now, we can respond to God's call to care for creation, to care for the world that he made, to make a difference right here and now. And then also, as we reflected earlier, the story of Parihaka, the story of people who bravely stood against violence. We right here and right now can learn to forgive our enemies, to create peace in our own worlds. And here's this dual invitation, come into the presence of God and be cleansed. God is not sitting up there with a whip waiting to punish you for all the bad that you have done so that you might one day be good enough. There's an invitation right here to come and know the presence of God, to be cleansed, to be forgiven, to be made whole, in order that we can go into a broken and hurting world and bring light and love. Let's pray together. Jesus, I want to thank you that you addressed to these people who tried to mock you this idea of what does happen when we die. And your answer wasn't just words, but it was a fully resurrected body that came to show that God has victory over death and that what we know and experience is just a shadow of what is to come. Help us to be so grasped by a vision of your future that we can be transformed. And God, I pray, come and rest on us. Fill us with your hope, your promise, your love. And may we truly know that you are not there to punish us. You are there to love us, to cleanse us, to make us whole again. I pray we wouldn't turn our backs on your offer of forgiveness and grace but we would receive it and be transformed. Fill us with your Holy Spirit so that our lives might be guided by your wisdom and your grace and that through your empowering we might make a difference in the world. Amen.